Glad we get to turn to the Word of God together as we're studying the Gospel of John, word by word, line by line. And we are, of course, this morning in John chapter 12, and uh, I'm going to begin about verse 16 as you're thinking about it this morning. Gospel of John chapter 12, verse 16. Let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful that you have given us the honor of opening your Word and having it spring alive into our lives. Father, we, we pray this morning some specific, some specific requests. First, w- would you reorder our minds according to this Scripture so that we think rightly? Would you reorder our hearts so that we feel rightly? And, uh, and would you tell us what it is that we are to do because of this text so that we'll live rightly? And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, as we've been seeing through the Gospel of John, we're headed towards the cross, headed towards the entire series of the Passion, headed towards the resurrection of Christ. And as is the case in the Gospels, because of the crucial importance of those events at the end of the life of Jesus, there's an extraordinary amount of the of the material itself in the Gospels devoted there, and there's a sense in which everything that comes before is a a way of kind of rocketing the energy uh, to those saving events. But of course, the entire life of Christ is a saving event. The entire incarnation of Christ is a saving event. We are saved not only by Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, but by His perfect obedience to the Father his active and his passive obedience to the Father throughout his entire life. And, and so as we are here in John chapter 12, we're at this huge hinge because after this, the, the passion narrative is going to come very, very quickly. The intensity is, is building, and as we saw, the intensity is what we were considering last week when we looked at chapter 12 and especially verses 9 and following with the plot to kill Lazarus. Those who are out to end the ministry of Jesus, in particular the the Pharisees and the the rulers, they they are so concerned as the temple authorities, as the establishment, to end the teaching ministry of Jesus that they are seeking not only to kill him, and we've been told that, but they're even seeking to kill Lazarus, whom Jesus raised from the dead, because Lazarus walking around is the most powerful sign unto himself that Jesus is the Christ. And the word crowd comes into this because the, the crowds show up. Uh, the, the crowds show up. Why? Well, in this very passage, we're told that the crowd showed up because of what had happened when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. So let's just remind ourselves. We, we, we've considered these verses, but in verse 9 we read, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came. There's that large crowd. Hold on to that. Not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Now, there's an interesting point to be made here. In Luke chapter 16, we find the account of the rich man and Lazarus. And uh, the rich man, Jesus tells us, feasted sumptuously every day, and, and he dressed in purple. And, and since he's not royalty, purple is the color of the nouveau riche. Uh, This is a man who is not a king, trying to live as a king, uh, boastfully 
and uh, arrogantly and, and, and rather uh, pathetically. He, he holds a feast every day. Now, even the, the wealthy in Israel didn't feast every day. They feasted on feast days. But there's this rich man, and he's an exaggeratedly rich, rich man. And then there's the poor man, Lazarus. Now, hold on a minute. It's not this Lazarus. It's not this Lazarus, because it's a, the, the, the Lazarus in, uh, in, in Luke chapter 16 stays where he is. So that's not this Lazarus. Lazarus was uh, such a common name. Jesus is using the name Lazarus in Luke chapter 16. But Lazarus is a poor man. He has nothing. He's dying. His body's covered with sores. The indignity is such that even the dogs come and lick his sores. So, so, so both of them die. And, and when they die, uh, the rich man is in Hades suffering, and, and Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom, which is to say the eschatological place of blessing. That's the, that's, the, that's the absolute covenant honor is to be in Abraham's bosom, which means being hosted by Abraham at the feast. And uh, so there's the, the, the great reversal. Lazarus now in heaven, so to speak, uh, in, in blessedness and, and the rich man in hell. So you'll recall the rich man calls out Father Abraham Send the Lazarus to dip his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in this fire. Well, Abraham responds by saying, that can't be done, because a great chasm has been fixed from where you are to where we are, so that no one can pass from here to there, nor can anyone pass from there to here. You had your good things on earth, and Lazarus had only bad things, but now he's comforted here, and you are in agony there. Round one. But, but the rich man isn't done, and so he cries out to Abraham one more time, and he says, well, if, if you can't do that, then send Lazarus to my father's house, for, for I have five brothers, and let him warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. That's interesting. The rich man says, well, if you can't send Lazarus here, then, then send him back to my, my, my father's house, and, and let him warn my brothers. But Abraham says he can't do that either. But it's an, interesting, it's an interesting dialogue because Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets, let them listen to them. That means the Bible. Moses and the prophets, shorthand for the Bible. They have the Old Testament, they have the Bible, they have the Scriptures. Let them listen to them. And the rich man comes back to Abraham and says, no, but if someone were to come from the dead, they would believe. And Jesus says, I tell you, if they would not hear, hear or heed Moses and the prophets, then they would not believe, would not repent, even if one should come from the dead. Well, here we are talk, we're told about Lazarus. And because on account of him, the Jews are going away and believing in Jesus. Well, Jesus tells us in Luke 16 that just any man dead now alive will not be the cause of belief if he were to return, if those who see him don't accept the Scriptures. And we're actually seeing that here. We're actually seeing just that pattern in John chapter 12, and we're seeing it, ironically enough, with a man named Lazarus. This Lazarus was raised from the dead. The Lazarus in Luke 16 stays with Abraham in Abraham's bosom. 
But the Lazarus of space and time and history that we read about here in, in John chapter 12, and of course in the preceding text, he, he was raised by Christ from the dead. He is alive now. He will die again later. Jesus didn't raise him to eternal life in that miracle. But right now he's alive and he's walking around, and this is a huge problem for those who will not believe. But you'll notice they don't become believers. That's the point. They're, they're trying to kill Lazarus. It's exactly what Jesus talked about in Luke chapter 16. You would think that if someone came back from the dead, people would get the point. But they don't get the point. They actually refuse to get the point. They not only refuse to get the point, they want to kill Lazarus. The, the pattern of unbelief will become apparent in an odd way just a few verses thereafter. But I wanted us to see that contrast between John 12 and Luke chapter 16 and the irony of the fact that the man in both cases is named Lazarus. Verse 9 says, the large crowd of the Jews. Hold on to that. Now in verse 12 we're told the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Now, large crowd and large crowd. The second large crowd is probably considerably larger than the first large crowd because the first large crowd was there of those who were curious about Lazarus. Uh, the second large crowd are those who have come for the feast. So in other words, Jerusalem is filling with people. And, and, and so the population is going to be very large. That becomes crucial for what we know as we saw last Sunday for what we call Palm Sunday with the, the, the crowd very large. But, but as we are looking at this, it's just amazing to see how the crowd functions again. And this is the, the palms. They took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. We saw this last week, went through this text. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. No, we went back to the prophet Zechariah last week and looked at that prophecy and, and, and what it means. The irony of a conquering king coming on a young donkey rather than a white horse of war. But we also saw, looking at the book of Revelation, that Christ will come on a white horse of war. But the, that is when he comes again. Here's where we come now to verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first. We've heard that before. The disciples don't understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd, here's the crowd again, follow, that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So there's a sense of resignation. But at this point in the Gospel of John, the pace quickens. I think in our theological or biblical memory, when we think about the passage concerning Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem, we would think there'd be more verses. It seems, it seems like it ought to be bigger and longer, but it's actually a very short sequence here in John chapter 12. Uh, things are happening fast. 
It's, 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 it's going to have to be a fast pace at this point. So, so notice what happens. In verse 20, we are told, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Jesus went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now, we've considered this before, a non sequitur. It's a, you know, this, this doesn't follow. It, uh, not, not in our minds. You know, a mother talking to a child, and uh, she says to the child, would you, uh, would you like eggs for breakfast? And the child says, I like purple. Fascinating. Nothing to do with the question asked. This is something I find absolutely interesting when I am in a situation like an airport where someone's standing right here and you're overhearing a conversation and you just realize evidently you've got to be in that relationship for this conversation to make any sense. Otherwise, it just seems a disjointed group of phrases and grunts. They're evidently communicating it. That, that, that's called marriage uh, or friendship. You, know, they, you, you, don't have to have, you don't have to make a logical argument. You just kind of get there. Well, this is the strange part of this text because it begins in the paragraph by telling us that amongst those in the large crowd, because of the feast, were Greeks. Now, the word Greek here does not necessarily mean Greek as in from Greece. It is the, the general term in the New Testament for Gentiles. Now, um, in my family history is Anabaptist, going back uh, several generations. My great-grandfather, seven back, in the 17th century, left uh, the Palatine States uh, near Basel in what's now Switzerland, and uh, as what we would call Amish, came in the Great Migration to the United States, coming in 1736 on the good ship Thistle. Uh, and came to Pennsylvania, you know, landed in, uh, in Philadelphia, and became a part of the Lancaster, Pennsylvania community. His home's still there, by the way. But uh, in, in that particular history, as you're thinking about it, uh, and, and, and as you deal with Amish people, you have to recognize that they divide the world into two categories. And uh, it's the folk, Volk, which means themselves, and the English, which is everyone else. Uh, the whole world's divided between the brotherhood, the people, uh, and the English. Now, someone hearing that could say, well, I'm actually Dutch. No, you're not. You're English. Uh, it's another way of just dividing the world. Now, why do they call everybody else the English? It's because when they were 
in the Palatine States, everybody spoke German. It was a German-speaking region, at times part of Germany. And when they came over, the other people who were colonizing and, and uh, establishing North America spoke English. So the first people they had to deal with were English, so everybody's English. If you were to put a Korean farmer next to an Amish farm, the Amish family would refer to them as the English. It's a great puzzlement, no doubt, but that's the way it is. And in the Jewish world, the entire world is divided between the Jews and the Gentiles. But the Gentiles that have the largest cultural influence are the Greeks. The Greek language is at this point uh, the most powerful. That's why the New Testament uh, is in Greek. So the, the Greek becomes a shorthand for everybody else. So there were God-fearers. They, they weren't a part of the covenant, but they had hope of being included in the covenant promises. Now remember, that was true in the Old Testament. Consider the prophecies of Isaiah about the nations coming unto Jerusalem. And, and by the way, I believe that's going to happen. I mean, I, I think that is a part of the eschatological promise. I think that that's going to be realized, uh, for instance, in the marriage supper of the Lamb, men and women from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. And when we have a new Jerusalem uh, coming down from heaven, uh, I believe all of these prophecies and all of these promises are going to be absolutely and perfectly fulfilled. But these, uh, these Gentiles had come in the hopes of, of being included in the covenant promises, but they're still, gen they're still Gentiles. They're still called Greeks. They would still never have been allowed within the court of Israel and the temple. They could have gone no further, but they could have gone to the court of the Gentiles. But they're making a statement that they believe that Yahweh, Jehovah, the God of Israel, is the one true God, and that salvation is in His name, and that blessing comes only from Him and that their hopes are ultimately in him. They may have come a great distance to have been there in Jerusalem at the feast, but they're outsiders. Now, let's be honest. What do you expect Jesus to do? Well, when the little children came and the disciples thought the little children were interrupting Jesus, what did Jesus say? He said, forbid not the little children to come to me. So what do you expect here? You expect Jesus to say, you do. Now, don't, don't look at me like you don't. I know you people. You do believe that what Jesus is going to say is, well, bring him right in. But Jesus doesn't. In fact, everything that follows is basically him saying that he won't see them. Why? Well, this is a massive issue. Let me just say that we must remember that on the other side of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and prior to his ascension, he universalizes the gospel mission. He, he does the opposite of what he does here. But he, he doesn't just say, let the nations come to you. He says, you go into the nations but not now. What's the dividing line? What's, a, what's this great dividing line in human history between when the Greeks are welcome, the Gentiles, and when they're not? When, when is the great dividing line? Well, it turns out to be the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. And how does Jesus speak of that? He speaks of it as his hour, as his hour. 
Once he has accomplished what the Father has sent him to do, the gospel is for everyone. But that isn't made clear until the, the uh, crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. John is very clear about this. And, and so notice what Jesus says. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, that's just massive. Now, look back in John chapter 2, verse 4. A long time ago, when we were beginning our study, we said when we were in verse 2, excuse me, in chapter 2, verse 4, we said, this is going to be important. This is when the mother of Jesus, Mary, comes to him about the wine. And uh, Jesus said to her, verse 4, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, so early in the life and ministry of Jesus, about three years before where we are here in, in John chapter 12. But Jesus told his mother, you don't understand, my hour has not yet come. Chapter 7, verse 30, we saw this a bit more recently. You'll remember that this is when there were those who were coming to seek to kill Jesus. You look at verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, John tells us, because his hour had not yet come. So there's a theme. We already saw the theme where the disciples didn't understand, but they understand later. And, and now we're in the same predicament, aren't we? We, we really didn't understand in 2.4 or 7.30 exactly what Jesus meant when he said, my hour has not yet come. But we understand it now because of the context of John chapter 12, when Jesus says, my hour has now come, well, then everything's changed. Everything's changed. And th this is the great hinge in the, the gospel of John. From my hour has not yet come to my hour has now come. Look at what he says. The hour has come, what? For the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, here's another theme of John chapter 12 that I think most evangelical Christians who know and love the Scripture have probably never thought about very intently. So, let's just say that you're telling the gospel to someone. We're, 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 you're sitting next to a friend, and uh, you get to, uh, to, to explain Christ. And, uh, and, and you're talking about what Christ has done, his saving work, and in particular, in your mind is cross and tomb and empty tomb and eventually his ascension to the Father. You think of the, those events in particular. How, how do you describe that? Would you, what is the one word for all of that? Um, the one word that John uses because Christ used it is glorified. The hour has now come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It's going to come up again in this text. That's a category changer. It should be a category changer. So what is actually happening when Christ is being tried? What's actually happening when Christ is being scourged? What's actually happening when Christ is being crucified? What's actually happening when Christ is in the tomb? What's actually happening 
when the Father raises him from the dead, what's actually happening in his appearances, and what's actually happening even in his ascension to the Father, what's actually happening is that he is being glorified. That's the category shift here, because we have to remember that the biblical worldview is never about what happened to Jesus. It's not. Jesus is not a passive victim. Jesus is not walking into a trap. This isn't a tragedy story about the failure of Jesus to avoid all that comes. No, he came for this hour, but in this hour, he's glorified. Well, how? How? How how can you describe all this as glory? Well, hold that because it's going to become more clear very shortly. Jesus explains it as the very essence of his ministry in verse 24 and following, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. So a grain of wheat on a table, you know, does nothing. It's just there. But if it is put into the ground, it at some point ceases to be a seed. The seed disappears but a stalk appears and grows into full wheat and bears fruit, more wheat, more seed. It's a repeated theme of Jesus. Here he's speaking of his own death. Think about it for a moment. He's saying that like wheat falls into the ground and dies as a seed, but then bears much fruit, that's what's happening now. That's what it means that this hour has come. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. It's also interesting that uh, the way we might remember a text is not the way the text actually is. You think, well, maybe we remember the text saying that Jesus said, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground, it's not fruitful. But if it if it put, is put in the ground and it dies, it bears much fruit. That's not what he said. It's fascinating. It, it's, it's, he says, if the grain of seed remains out of the earth, it remains alone. Isn't that something? So, actually, another theme we need to watch is the fact that when we are considering the purpose of the Father in creating human beings, the only creatures made in His image, and then redeeming those people, not all of them, but those who would, would be amongst his people, he redeems them through the Son and adopts them so that the Son's not alone. He's the firstborn of those who will come. He's the, the first fruits of the resurrection. That's an amazing thing. It, it, it at least in part tells us that Christ's atoning work is so that he would have his people not be alone. And he explains this as the seed falling into the ground. Whoever loves his life loses it. 
and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, Jesus uses this kind of, you might say, exaggerated language. It's not to take any of the bite out of it. It means exactly what he says. We will either love our life or we will hate our life, but we're not actually called to hate our life in the sense that we wish we'd never been born and, and we wish we weren't in this life now because that's not an accident. This is actually God's purpose. But it, but it is to say what we hold is most precious is going to determine who we are. If we're willing to lose this life, we can gain the life to come. If we are determined to hold on to this life, then we shall not have eternal life. If anyone serves me, Christ says, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. By the way, he's not alone. He's not alone. Where, where I am. He will say this over and over again when we get to John chapter 15, John chapter 16. Uh, you, you know, Jesus is not going to be alone because of the atoning work that he will do. Where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Verse 27, a shift in tone. Now is my soul troubled. The, the word that's, uh, that, that is used there is, is like troubled water. You know, it's, 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 it's distress, uh, turmoil. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? So Jesus is allowing us, as he spoke to his disciples here, he's allowing us into his inner thinking, and, and it's vital that we follow it. He's saying his soul is troubled. The very thought of the crucifixion, of all that's coming, of the passion, of the scourging, and, 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 and obviously of death, his, his soul is troubled. But then he says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? He corrects that immediately. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Here's the, is the hour again. What's this hour? How do we understand this hour? Does Christ pray to avoid this hour? No. The entire purpose is coming. What's for the purpose of this hour? Then this glory comes immediately. Father, glorify your name. There's glorify. What, 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 what does that mean? When first we read about Christ saying that the hours come for the Son of Man to be glorified, and now He cries out, Father, glorify Your name. What does that mean? I'm, I'm going to have the honor of speaking about this at T4G in, in, in a few weeks. And this is a theologian. It's, it's an issue that's puzzled me, and it's, it's something I've just struggled with and enjoyed struggling with and profited from struggling with. For the entirety of my adult life, how precisely is it that God is glorified in the gospel? I'm really looking forward to talking about that. How exactly, how, how exactly does the gospel bring glory to God? Because we know it does, but, but explaining it requires some real thinking. You know, one of the things I'll say in that message is that I was completely messed up by my grandmother on this whole issue. I don't mean to throw her under the bus here. She loved me dearly, but she was a Southern lady the way they don't make Southern ladies anymore. She was, she was as William Faulkner would say, a substantial Southern lady. She wore a cotton dress every day. She didn't wear anything else. Uh, I, I guarantee you, uh, she never wore anything but a dress. And uh, 
And it was the same kind of dress every day. It was always clean and pressed and substantial. And she, she, she could hug big, let me tell you. And she was such a loving, sweet lady. Uh, she had a black patent leather purse with her all the time. I think she slept with it. Uh, and in it was everything. It was, you know, it's like it's like a Disney character. You know, you need a wrench, you know, you need a cash register. Uh, she just had everything in there. And, and in one hand, she always had a cotton handkerchief, always, just in case it should ever be needed. It was just always there because Southern ladies had them in the hand. That's just the, that's just, that's just the way it worked. This is the uniform. But the language, oh my goodness, she messed me up with more of the English language. So I'm a little boy, and uh, I, uh, I had to go with my mother and grandmother shopping once a week which, you know, four or five-year-old little boy is not the most exciting thing in the world. I mean, you're glad to be anywhere, but you got to get dressed. When I was growing up, you had to get dressed up to go to the store. So you got dressed up. That was a lot of fun. Hey, thanks. Um, get dragged along. The, the bad news was that if I misbehaved, it was bad after we got home. The good news was that if everything went well, I got a vanilla Coke at the Touchstone's drugstore counter. That was very good. That's what I'm aiming for. And if, and if really, really good, a grilled cheese sandwich with the vanilla Coke at Touchstone's drugstore at the counter. But she really messed me up on the language because being a dignified Southern lady, she couldn't use bad language. So she had to use good words to mean other things that a five-year-old boy does not understand. And so if something was really bad, she would say, Mercy. Something's gone wrong, some heinous sin, some kind of horrible thing. Mercy. So I thought mercy meant that's really bad. It's not good for biblical theology, I can tell you. It sure makes a lot of hymns confusing. You know. Mercy there was great and grace was free. Uh, gosh, I don't, I don't understand that. But uh, then she used the word glory, and that was the opposite of mercy. So teenage girl gets pregnant, Mercy. Boy Scout saves a little old lady. Glory. So I thought, well, glory is really good and mercy is really bad. Again, really bad theological preparation. But the, the word glory, it was just like an exclamation point. It was uh, because she, being a dignified Southern Christian lady, her vocabulary was very restricted. So she just used other words, and then she wasn't alone. This was like a cultural conspiracy. Other grandmothers did the very same thing. And, and so every five-year-old kid walking around was as theologically confused as I was. But what does the word glory mean? What is it? So when I teach theology, I, uh, I, had to, I have to define glory. So let me define glory for you just the way I define it in class. The glory of God is the internal reality of God himself in all his perfections. It's the internal reality of God himself in all his perfections. And it is the external manifestation of his greatness. The internal manifestation of God himself in all of his perfections and the external manifestation of God's greatness. Now, why do you need both? Well, it's because 
God doesn't wax or wane. He's not, you speak about the glory of God, you, it's just like speaking about the omnipotence of God or the sovereignty of God. It, it, it's never less here and more there. It, 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 it doesn't vary. He doesn't change. But then we have biblical terms about glorifying God and about, and of course in our evangelical uh, parlance, you know, give God the glory. Well, if he's infinite in his glory, how can we give him anything? But the Bible makes clear and if we had time, we could just look through the Old Testament and the New. There's a second sense in which the glory of God is the visible manifestation of himself. And that does, in creation, wax and wane. And that's why where God's people are, that's where God's glory is visible. And so one of the tasks of the church is to make the gospel more visible and, 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 and God more visible through the gospel. That, that, that's one of the ways, by the way, that the gospel brings glory to God. God glorifies himself in the gospel because the gospel makes clear that he is the saving God. Jesus here says, as we saw about his hour, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And, and then we read, he says, my soul is troubled. Shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I've come to this hour Father, glorify your name. So he, he talked about the Son of Man being glorified. Now he's talking about the Father being glorified. And as we shall see when we are together next week and we can follow this through, it is this, this system, this, this, perfect, this perfect plan of the Father whereby the Father glorifies the Son and the Son glorifies the Father. And in the obedience of the Son to the Father, there is glory revealed. You see it right here. But in accepting the sacrifice of the Son and in vindicating His substitutionary atonement and in raising Him from the dead, the Father glorifies the Son. There's a reciprocity between the Father and the Son in glory. And it's not that either one of them ever has more or less glory, because as the one true and living God who doesn't change and whose, whose perfections are infinite, He's never more glorious in Himself, the Father. Christ is never more glorious in himself at any time or less. But the visibility of that glory amongst us is variable. Now, just very quickly, understand that when Jesus says, Father, glorify your name, then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. The point is, once again, you have a people who heard the voice of God from heaven and still didn't believe. They, it's like Lazarus banging on the rich man's father's house. There's the pattern. But we're going to see how it is that the Father is glorified in the Son, and the Son is glorified in the Father, and all that's going to continue, especially by the time we get to John chapter 17. But when we are together, if the Lord allows next Sunday morning, we will be looking at what it means when Christ says that the Son of Man must be lifted up. And as you already know, 
Jesus has said that before. Let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful that you allowed us to open your word. Father, thank you for allowing us to inch along in the text. Father, thank you for giving us the time to devote ourselves to understanding what we may have read hundreds and hundreds of times past, to understand in a new way. Father, that happens every time we open your word afresh. It's a living word. We pray this word will be right now, by your Holy Spirit, taken to our hearts to conform us to the image of Christ. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.